0: Welcome to the Someday is Here podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. So glad you're here. Someday is Here is a podcast for AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander leaders. In each episode, we discuss how we navigate living in both Eastern and Western worlds and how the unique blend of our experiences influences our faith, our life, and our leadership. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Someday is Here. I'm really excited for today's episode with J.S. Park. But before we jump into this conversation, I just wanted to offer a content warning, trigger warning for our listeners. Uh, We discuss mental health um, and suicide, as well as uh, depression, anxiety, and medication. And so we will be covering these topics during this conversation, and I just wanted you to be aware of that. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Someday is Here. And I'm just loving season four. I hope you are enjoying it as much as I. Um, Amazing guests. And today is no exception. Um, I'm thrilled, genuinely, genuinely thrilled to introduce to you J.S. Park, June. He is a hospital chaplain, a published author, a viral blogger. Uh, One of his uh, posts just he just wrote an article for USA Today that was phenomenal. He has been for the last seven years an interfaith chaplain at a 1000 plus bed hospital. That is a designated level one trauma center and he is um, does many things, including grief counseling. He is at the bedside of people as they pass from life to death every trauma, every code blue, staff care, and thinking about just even the families and supporting end of life care. It's really, really powerful, all that he does. He's also served for three years as a chaplain at one of the largest nonprofit charities for the homeless on the East Coast. Uh, JS has an MDiv in, from completed in 2010, a BA in psychology. He's also a sixth degree black belt in Taekwondo, so don't mess with him. <laughs> He's the author of The Voices We Carry, Finding the One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. And he lives in Tampa, Florida with his lovely wife, a nurse practitioner, and my favorite kid on social media right now, his two-year-old daughter. And they also have an adopted dog. So welcome, June, to the Some Days Here podcast.
1: Viv, I am so happy to be here. And I, I want to lift you up a moment and brag on you. My sure. wife and I attended a virtually the Some Days Here Conference last year, we were so encouraged and lifted up. And you touched on so much, uh, so much for the AAPI community and for mental health and for faith. You intersected all these wonderful points of discussion. We were filled and just seeing you speak and hearing your teaching. I am a big fan of yours. So I am very, very happy uh, to be here. A little bit nervous even. Oh, and, uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's funny when you read the thing about being on USA Today, I was like, I think it was a today show, but I was like, was I on USA Today? Cause I'm a I, fan of both.
0: <laughs> no, if, if not, you will be soon. I'm I'm quite convinced, sir. You- yeah.
1: you're No, good. no, no, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thank you for that that very kind intro. I feel like I could, I speak for days about just how awesome and wonderful you are. I, I'm, I'm just big smile right now because I, we love you and your work.
0: Oh, well, I can't wait to meet your family. And just I think in in such a crazy world right now, it's so fun mm-hmm. to be able to, to connect with those of similar heart. And I've just so respected and admired how you have navigated these times. And I think especially um, in these years, as you've had to bring all of who you are into your work and into really your ministry online to people. I'm just really grateful to unpack some of your story with our listeners. So before, I would love to jump in for those who don't know much of your story. I'd love for you to share some of your ethnic heritage story.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, my parents were both immigrants and uh, they got pregnant in New York. They met in New York Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: they decided at the time that New York was probably not the best place for them to raise a child. And so they moved to Florida, Hmm. good old Florida, which is so much better. (laughs) (laughs) All the Florida man stories are true. Um, Yeah, but I, um, they, you know, were not married and the one before me, they were pregnant before me, they decided to have uh, an abortion. And -hmm. so I wasn't planned on. Mm -hmm. And when I was born, the narrative that I believed was I am some kind of accident. And they told me very early on that they hadn't planned on me. I think just Asian parents not entirely understanding the effect and impact that they might, that might have on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, grew up an atheist. And my dad, he described himself as a Christian, but sometimes that was very, very hard to tell by the way he lived. Mm. And uh, my mom, she would say that she's kind of eclectic, meaning she believed everything and believed nothing. You know, it's all true. Maybe none of it's true. My grandmother was Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she lived with us. And then my uncle, he had um, schizophrenia and had paranoid delusions. He also lived with us. He had severe uh, mental health issues. Mm. So we lived in a multi-generational home. And part of me was very, very, I guess, averse to my Korean heritage. Mm. I really, 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 uh, just to be plainly spoken, wanted to be white. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a predominantly, you know, white school and through most of my school years, it was just me and maybe one or two other Asian kids, if that.
2: Right.
1: And so, you know, everybody, every, I think every Asian American has a lunchbox story.
2: Yeah. And, yep. Uh,
1: you know, it's a bit of a, it's almost yeah. a, you know, a, a urban myth or a cliche by now, but I got that lunchbox story, you know, brought bulgogi to school and all the kids were just like, oh, that smells. So, you know, I, I, I demanded that my mom change it because <laughs> uh... I wanted to blend in, you know?
2: Uh, yeah. And
1: uh, And so there was a part of me that really despised how I looked, my Korean heritage. And it probably wasn't even until about eight or 10 years ago that I really started to embrace my history and my ancestry and my parents' culture and the things that I grew up with and mm. how powerful their story was. And some of the the dysfunction I was able to work through, but also embrace the good stuff mm. that was part of our heritage and our history. And so I guess to make a, a long story a little bit shorter, there was so much about my own community. And when I say my own community, the Korean American and wider Asian American community mm-hmm. that I pushed away for so long.
2: Mm.
1: And um, I internalized a lot of that. Because I received so much racism and I was a magnet for so much bigotry,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I and as Asian Americans, as Asians, we can't hide our race in our face, and yeah. that's true for many people of color. Yeah. And so I internalized a lot of that, and so there are still so many things that I need to unlearn about that internalized racism,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and
1: to and I continually in that process of learning from and rediscovering the the beauty of what it means to be Korean to be Asian Mm -hmm. and I've written about this before Viv you know I I only recently discovered maybe a couple years ago a buried trauma where my first day of preschool the teacher found that I couldn't speak English and put Mm -hmm. me in a corner the whole day and and not just put me in a corner but had me facing the corner Mm -hmm. and told me not to turn around and I cried that whole day is probably my first memory and uh it's because of that and assimilation that over the next couple of years after I, I was four at the time, the next mm-hmm. few years, I just forgot all my Korean at the time wow. that's all I could speak, and I can understand uh a lot of my language, but speaking there's just this verbal block
2: mm-hmm. and
1: yeah. uh, I just started relearning on duolingo I think I'm okay. on like day yeah day sixty four or something I've hit I that streak
2: so. yes,
1: yeah, yeah, but um. There's so much in our story, and I I know it's not an original story. It's very common. And yet at the same time, it is the story of many second-generation Asian-Americans where the goal is assimilation, to leave behind who we are. And I'm in that process of rediscovering now. And there is lost time, but I'm also gaining so much.
0: Mm. So what happened in that like eight to 10 years ago where there was the beginnings of the reclaiming? Were Mm -hmm. there events that happened or books that you read? What happened?
1: So I can point to a very, very specific event. Um, I went into hospital chaplaincy. Uh, It's been exactly seven years now Mm -hmm. that I've been a hospital chaplain. And uh, before that, I I had been married for about a year. And my wife, I can, this may sound funny, but she's more Korean than me. She's, you know, perfectly fluent. You know, she she mm-hmm. loves K-dramas mm-hmm. and uh, she's very steeped into her, you know, family and the, the culture, all of it. And, uh, you know, she cooks the best Korean food. She's definitely more, quote unquote, Korean than me.
2: Sure, sure.
1: And so when we got married, I... Was open to and interested, I think, in rediscovering just because when we got married, I just realized there was so much that I had hidden and suppressed mm-hmm. and buried.
2: Mm-hmm. When
1: I got into the chaplain program, chaplain training is six-month internship and a year-long residency and very few people make it in. That sounds like a brag, but it's it's one of those programs that is very, very uh they just open the door uh, for I think five interns and uh, about ten interns and five residents a year. I was so lucky wow. to get in, wow. and the training is intense, mm-hmm. very, very intense. And so we have these one-on-ones with our supervisor, and part of it is we have to learn all the skill set of like active listening, therapeutic response, family dynamics, and, and multiple perspectives on grief because we're dealing with so much in the hospital. You know, yeah. we attend every death, and the code blue, as you had read in the beginning. So um, supervisors, as we're one-on-one, they're getting us in touch with our own story and our own grief and and with our mental health. And there's like a warp speed growth that happens. Okay. And my supervisor found out slowly that there was so much of my history that I hated in myself. Wow. Um, You know, I grew up in the dojo. My dad taught taekwondo. He he has, you know, had had several schools here in the States. Mm. And so... I quit Taekwondo some years ago. um, And so there's a part of me, though, that hated, hated doing Taekwondo because I was just Mm -hmm. raised in it. Mm
2: -hmm. And I was
1: trained to be competitive, even violent. And I don't Mm -hmm. think I'm a violent person. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: so there's a part of me that just hated all the competition and all of that stuff. And then there's the internalized racism and then the wanting to be white. And so my chaplain supervisor asked me very gently, she said, um what parts of your story have you had to hide um, mm. that you feel like uh, you could rediscover again? Yeah. She said something like that. Mm. And I started to slowly over time during that internship and residency, mm. come back to my roots. She mm. asked me about my Koreanness. Mm. She asked me, you know, what parts of martial arts is, is part of your body and your mind now? Because it's mm. where you grew up in. And uh, you know, she's like, "You're a 6 degree black belt. You don't talk about it much." Is there something in that that you want to keep? You know, the discipline of it, the art of it, the beauty of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And over time, I just became reinterested in rediscovering my Koreanness mm-hmm. and also the plight that we face. Yes. And one of the things that I recognized about my assimilation is that very often, when assimilation happens, second-gen Asian Americans, in particular, climb the mountain called assimilation and it is a westernized mountain of success mm-hmm. and almost by necessity for survival
2: mm-hmm. we
1: leave behind the parts of us that we feel ashamed of
2: mm-hmm. because it
1: is not white slash westernized enough yeah and so we leave those people behind we leave those feelings behind we leave the story behind mm-hmm. we forget what it's like
2: yeah. and it
1: was painful to remember but it was so healing And Mm -hmm. so liberating to remember my people, remember my roots, remember my struggle.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, really, I I complete gratitude and thankfulness to the chaplain program Mm
2: -hmm. really Mm -hmm.
1: brought me back and returned me to myself to bring me back home.
0: That's beautiful. Now, the supervisor, was she a woman of color?
1: Yes, she was. And she was very, very in tune and and in touch with her own roots and heritage Mm -hmm. and really, really guided me along.
0: Hey everyone, do you have big goals for 2023? I'm actually pretty excited about this new year, and that's in part because of the Prep Dish Meal Plans. Subscribers receive an email every week with an organized grocery list and instructions for prepping meals ahead of time. If you don't think you have time to meal prep, I used to think the same thing, but with the Prep Dish Super Fast Meal Plans, I can prep five healthy dinners in just one hour. Every Friday, I receive meal prep meal plans straight into my inbox. I have the choice of either gluten-free, paleo, low-carb, and super-fast meal plans. So if you want to serve healthy, homemade meals without the stress, the founder, Allison, is offering listeners of Some Days Here a free two-week trial to try it out. You can't beat that. Check out PrepDish.com Vivian for this amazing deal. Compassion International is working to release children from poverty in Jesus' name through its one-on-one child sponsorships. When you sponsor a child through Compassion, your $38 a month will provide food, clean water, education, medical and dental checkups, and above all else, the ability to learn about Jesus and flourish through the local church. Letters from your child will help you keep updated on their life and development your sponsorship ensures this child will have hope, hope that poverty will end with him or her. But your compassion sponsorship doesn't just provide for the needs of the child. Compassion cares for the whole family. Your sponsorship will change one child, one family, and one community. There are more than 100,000 children awaiting sponsorship, children who are desperate for hope. To partner with compassion in bringing hope to a child today, simply text Ivy Media, that's I V E Y Media, to 83393, or go to compassion.com slash Ivy Media. The link will also be in the show notes. That's compassion.com slash Ivy Media. You know, I, I think as I walk these paths alongside with you and with so many others, uh, the linking arms with other communities of color, and with yes. so so many um, places where we connect with similar values, and uh, I just I love the thought that she would be able to see that in you, and and so gently and tenderly call that out to to bring bring that restoration, because in that way her gift continues to you know you're paying it forward. And what you're doing as well is helping others to begin to validate and see and celebrate and recognize. So that's really beautiful and powerful.
1: Yeah. Shout out to her. Shout out to (laughs) her. Absolutely.
0: And, you know, it's just, and that's one of the things I am most proud of with our heritage is that we really are about those who have helped us, those who are with us. And helping to pave the way for the, the coming generation. And, um, that's one of the things I'm most proud of about being from a collective culture. And I love that. So now I've had so many questions. I have, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lurker on Twitter. It's just that <laughs> the, whole, the, the whole environment is terrifying to me. I feel so intimidated and my friends who are very gifted in words, in writing, um, are able to engage in ways that are just, um, they're just skilled, and I I feel very intimidated by inserting my own voice in <laughs> in the uh, the chaos there. But you faithfully show up, and I have seen you uh, shepherd people and love people, and I've also seen you handle um, ignorant haters and trolls. And I just am curious, how do you maintain perspective and maintain a balance in the midst of life online?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I I have always thought that I am a bridge builder. And Mm -hmm. that may sound like a brag, but it's actually pretty difficult. And I know that different people have different Temperaments, gifts, callings, and and goals online,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: some people very very they do this very well. They're able to call out and do the snark, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. and be you know petty, but in a way that's like funny and witty and whimsical and like very you know winsome, I guess. So yes. Yes. there are people who do that well. That's mm-hmm. I I could probably do it, but I don't have like the capacity for that, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. I, I think I'm just more of a person who, when I see somebody saying something incredibly mean spirited, mm-hmm. there is, of course, a part of me, the impulse or instinct to want to say something back that's, that's fighting fire with fire.
2: Sure. Um,
1: but the human part of me, the chaplain part of me, um, the Christian part of me, you know, mm-hmm. knows that, that grace goes a long way. Hmm. And again this is not for everyone. We do need our our snarky people. We do yes. need the contrarians and and the people who are going to give their hot takes. I love it yeah. all.
2: Yeah. And I love yeah. them all.
1: Yeah. Um but I want to be the person who uh brings up a compassionate curiosity.
2: Hmm. So
1: that I'm I'm gently saying like I don't agree with that. Have you thought of this?
2: Hmm.
1: And uh that's not easy to do. I don't always do it successfully. And there are times when I would like to say the snarky thing, and then sometimes I do. (laughs) Um, But I would say that I think out of all the different types of people online, we need our bridge builders too. And I determined long ago that part of my mission is going to be I never want to just dunk on somebody.
2: Um,
1: There are great dunkers. I don't want to be in that persona uh, or, or communicate that way online. Because I, I don't do that in real life. You know. I don't want to dunk on anybody. Yeah. Um, if anything, I want to lift up what that person is saying and at the same time get them to question why they may have come to that conclusion. Hmm. Um, and I, this drives my wife a little nuts, but I am overly an optimist. I think in Korean, there's a, there's a word, which means naive. Mm, okay. um, and when I say th- yeah, when I say that drives my wife nuts, what I mean is um my wife sometimes thinks that I'm overly optimistic to the point of just giving in too easily or just, you know, rose colored glasses so I don't see red flags. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And- and she keeps my feet on the ground, and she's got this wisdom and insight and like analytical ability that i I lack you know <laughs> so I, so i I say that very kindly about my wife that she kind of keeps me grounded and keeps me seeing real- realistically which mm-hmm. i which I absolutely need
2: mm-hmm. but i
1: I assume when people comment or say mean things i i this is not always true of them, but I assume it's something in good faith, you know mm-hmm. or or they're having a bad day and they're just saying it in this particular way, or something I said triggered them or something I said touched on their story in a way that's drawing out or evoking this harsh reaction.
2: Sure, and yeah. and
1: that's not always true of, you know, they're obvious racists. I, I get death threats online. I've had my wife and my daughter threatened. Wow. Um, yeah, I've gotten just straight up racial slurs. I'm like, there's not even a joke in there. That's not mm-hmm. a punchline. You know, that's um, the creative stuff. I can almost kind of like, okay, that's funny. But mm-hmm. just there's some stuff there that it's just straight awful, where yeah. I will, will not condone condone. I just condemn that block, done with it, report in block. But but there's that kind of middle ground where maybe they're not coming in good faith, but if I can return in good faith, is Mm -hmm. there a chance? Um, Not that I would convert them, not that I would get them to see, quote unquote, my way, Mm
2: -hmm. but -hmm.
1: rather that they can hold compassion for something that they may not agree with.
2: Mm.
0: Wow. That takes a whole level of (laughs) self-control, <laughs> so hats off to you <laughs> in in the heart of being able to move through that initial response because um, I think, yeah, I agree. I, ha- I, I see the wide range of ways people interact with each other and um, I think I'm in your camp, June, where I'm just, I, I am a believer that if there's ignorance and then there's all, this, all of a sudden learning that those who are ignorant would then change the trajectory of generations after them. You know, like that's kind of the hope that, you know, interaction and proximity, it really matters. And if people are willing to take the time to explain or to help, that that actually helps move us forward. And uh, that's what civility can look like. Did you know that AAPI Heritage Month is celebrated each year in the month of May because it commemorates two specific significant events in American history, which happened in May. First, on May 7th, 1843, the first Japanese immigrant arrived in the US. Second, on May 10th, 1869, The Transcontinental Railroad was completed through the labor and sacrifice of nearly 20,000 Chinese laborers. The idea of honoring Asian Americans was first introduced to Congress in the late 1970s by Jeannie Zhu, whose great-grandfather was a rail laborer. Jeannie served as a congressional staffer. Because of Jeannie, the support she received, and the efforts of many others, every year there's an entire month devoted to AAPI heritage to educate, celebrate, and recognize the inheritance of who we are to our community and to the world. And that's this week's Did You Know? You operate in grief uh, on all levels, in all different ways. and the volume of grief i i would imagine has been compounded through the pandemic and through COVID. and um i just wonder how do you handle compassion fatigue Um, what what do you personally do that keeps you from numbing um numbing out in in seeking to still move toward Um, i just i i think I think of uh, grief and challenge, like as a cancer survivor, when I was going through my active treatment and, you yeah. know, the chemo and everything, it was just, it was just so hard. I just needed to get through the next day. And I felt like my emotional sponge was full and I couldn't take in the earthquake in Haiti. And I, I just, there was no more capacity and I needed time to like, time really to wring out some of that Trauma and grief, in order to engage again and to care again, and when you have to keep showing up to work, and be at the bedside of someone who is breathing their last, how how do you stay um, grounded, tender, um, caring? Um, how do you not just just shut down?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Viva. I, I do want to pause here and say, you're, first, you're really, really good at this, at the podcasting. <laughs> um, second, I, I wanted to ask you, as you were talking about chemo and recovery, I mean, I felt that in my heart and my gut as you were talking about that. I And you used the words ringing out, the mm. ringing out. Um, yeah, I, I would just love to ask you if you're okay to answer um what that ringing out looked like for you during that time?
2: Hmm.
0: Well, I think ringing out wasn't for, at least for me, it wasn't so much uh, active, like, this is what I'm going to do, as much as uh, recognizing looking back, that it had really taken time. Like, I was confused as to why I stopped caring about world events or uh, wasn't able to engage with another friend who had just been diagnosed with cancer or who had a yes. friend or a family member diagnosed with cancer. Like I just couldn't take on anymore. Where having been in ministry for so many years, that was what I was accustomed to. And it just surprised me where I just couldn't. So the ringing out for me was looking back and realizing I was confused at this time. And then over the course of time, regained compassion and was able to regain, um, an ability to take in more, um, So I don't know if it was an active decision to ring out as much as I just needed time to be okay with being in my own recovery and then understanding that I didn't need to be what I used to be because now I'm living a new normal.
1: Wow. Wow. Thank you for asking. Yeah. That sounds like, sounds like you went through some grief and, and readjustment and when you said, uh, being okay with where you weren't, where you didn't used to be.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, is a,
1: that is a hard process. And uh, m- maybe only even learned in hindsight, you know? It, yeah. It's not something we can just engineer in the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. We can't yeah. wheel our way out of that. And I think that's some of the confusion about when our bodies betray us a little bit, that there's, there's not a formula. Um, and learning to live in the... The confusion and having more questions than answers i think god used cancer in my life to to pull out a lot of those truths that i didn't understand when other people struggled like Mm. why don't you just trust god it's the most reasonable thing in light of who he is and then to go through Mm. such a hard time helped me to understand and have compassion for those that have questions
1: yeah yeah Yeah, I think so often, uh, betrayal, like you use the word betrayal, betrayal, the body can even sometimes feel like a betrayal by God,
2: Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah.
1: it's like, you know, you gave me this body, God, and now why do I have to endure this? Mm. You know? Yeah. Suffering does draw out those questions.
2: Yeah.
1: And then, um, I think there's eventually not for everyone, but maybe a settling into however it looks of saying, okay, those questions are going to be there and they may never be answered, Mm -hmm. you know? yeah yeah Yeah. i see that in uh, my patients all the time yeah i um to answer your question earlier i i don't think i could do this without processing with my coworkers, the Mm -hmm. other chaplains Mm -hmm. and uh you know it's a running joke that the chaplains make the best chaplains (laughs) 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 they really do and uh even just how kind of we did a little mini processing just in this moment you know, we're allowed between visits to take time to process together.
2: Yeah, yeah, You know,
1: and during the pandemic, we leaned heavily on one another. And, and we still do before the pandemic. And, you know, we're still in the, in the midst of a lot of that. Yeah. We lean heavily on each other because uh, nobody can carry this alone, you mm-hmm. know. And, uh, yeah, the unbearable can only be made bearable when we bear it together.
2: Hmm.
1: And that may be like a cute one liner until you're really there and you realize, I, re- I really need to, to talk this out,
2: to process
1: yeah. this out, to externalize what I'm going through. And yeah. um, sometimes that may mean talking. Sometimes that may mean just sitting together and weeping.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: uh, mm-hmm. sometimes it just looks like a hug. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I have two therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm taking medication okay. because you can, you can trust yes. God and take Prozac Amen. at the same time. Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yes. And uh, I have a therapist, uh, a trauma therapist and I have one who's kind of like my day-to-day therapist. Mm. And uh, I say that knowing I'm very lucky and have a lot of privilege to have two therapists. Mm. Um, my, my insurance I get from the hospitals is pretty good. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that I have all that. Mm. Um, but doing this work, seeing what i do is impossible
2: mm-hmm.
1: it is impossible yeah and uh at a thousand plus bed hospital we have about 20 chaplains right now and uh we could use more you know oh. but seeing as having as many as we do that is crucial to how, mm-hmm. to getting our work uh done yeah. and one of the things that i'm so thankful for is that we have this common mission we're all on the same page. You know, we're, we're interfaith chaplains and we come from different backgrounds. So I work mm-hmm. with a lot of Christian chaplains, but there's also Jewish and Buddhist and even even like agnostic or atheist chaplains.
2: Wow.
1: And true. yeah, yeah. But we have the common goal of this hospital, essentially, is our sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And we are the therapists slash priests. You know, we are the hands and feet of divinity. That's right. And so when I was doing church ministry, which I did for seven years, uh, almost seven years, I... I loved church ministry, but there was so much behind closed doors, so Mm. much about the leadership, so Mm. much about the bickering. Mm -hmm. There are some pastors who are made to navigate that. I I just couldn't do it. I tried Mm. so hard uh, to play ball and do the politics stuff, and I I just maybe wasn't smart enough or designed for that or something. I I just couldn't hack it. Mm. Um, But so often, being here now for seven years in the hospital working, there's so much of my heart that grieves because if the church operated like the hospital with that sense of urgency and mission and care and, and facing each other out of love rather than, you know, the color of the paint is wrong in this room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. our numbers are down for baptisms. Right. Um, I don't like that song that you sung last week, you know. um and that's only the tip of the iceberg there's abuses and abandonment all kinds of stuff happen in church circles um charismatic leaders that shouldn't be where they are you know all of that Mm -hmm. i just think being in the hospital where i'm at i I wouldn't want to do this work i couldn't and i wouldn't want to do it without the other chaplains and that's the only way we've been able to survive Mm
2: -hmm. and so
1: i'm sure in your own story too as you were going through recovery there's probably at least a handful of names you can recall even now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I brought up earlier Waleska, my chaplain supervisor. I mean, she is indel you know, indelibly a part of my story now. Yeah. At, at, you know. And uh we are each other's support we're each other's chaplains. And um, you know, there are coworkers and collaborators that even if you don't talk to them again because it was just for that season, mm-hmm. they become a part of your life and monumental in a way that they're just permanently intertwined with you and help you do the work even if you don't see them again or if they're out of that season yeah and so so yeah. shout out to them really amazing yeah. amazing coworkers. yeah
0: that's incredible and again to me it just speaks of gospel and it speaks of how god has hardwired us to be in community and it and that that what you're experiencing with these chaplains is genuine fellowship not the have a donut and a coffee after church fellowship, but just genuinely like doing life together. And um, yeah, what a beautiful yeah.
1: Can we... I Bible verse here real quick, Viv? Yeah, it's, oh, it's always my my always. my favorite verse of scripture, First uh, John four twelve. It says, uh, "No one has seen God, but if we love one another, His love lives in us and is made complete in us." Wow, you know that's how the invisible God is made visible.
0: That's just gave me goosebumps. And to think about that verse in the context of your day to day is incredibly powerful. Yeah. I'm going to need some tissues here, sir.
1: <laughs> Am I allowed to cry on your podcast? Yeah. Of course you are. We'll just you
0: know, go <laughs> connect on all the things. Wow. Well, as you have led in so many different arenas, whether it be at church or you know, at the hospital, uh, online, in different ways. What are some of the leadership principles that you live by or seek to live by or would want to be known as a leader who does blank?
1: Yeah. The first thing that popped to my mind is uh, own my mistakes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's a part of me, Viv, that thinks, is it because culturally and historically and in my own story that because I can't own my accomplishments that I run to my mistakes very quickly, because mm-hmm. there is a psychological, I think, tendency or propensity, and I say this for myself, but it could be culturally true.
2: Yeah. When
1: I make a mistake, I ruminate on it like oh, too much.
2: Yes. You know? Mm-hmm.
1: And in the shower, I'm like shouting it out. I'm like replaying <laughs> what I could have done differently. Yes. When my head hits the pillow, you know, that whole thing, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. whole routine. I get and, you. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's that it's that voice of the insecurity, the self-doubt, the second-guessing. Mm. And uh, just a super quick story. I did a live radio interview once where I was talking about one of the things in my book about the voice of self-doubt, self-condemnation. Mm. And I said something like, you know, even as you're interviewing me right now, you probably have a voice in your head going, well, that sounded weird. Or why did I say it like that? Or we're live right now. <laughs> <Why did-?" laughs> and uh, when I said that to him, the host paused, and there was dead air time for about five seconds <laughs> <laughs> and then i heard him go oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh yeah let, let's cut to a commercial <laughs> so we cut and i was stayed on the phone with him and he goes wow i was i was gone there for a second just what you <laughs> I was like, yeah, we all got that. So I think he, he just kind of got lost in what I was saying because it happens all of us. Yes. You know, yeah, there's a try, there's a trialogue that happens where it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to this group, but then also like there's another voice that's like speaking to me. Well, that was, you know, why'd you say it like that? You know, or oh, your voice got kind of nasally. That wasn't okay. You know, you know, (laughs) all of them. Yeah. All all of that. So sometimes I wonder, oh, it's own my mistakes. Like, am I just being critical? But, The one thing I see very commonly, that in leaders that uh, don't lead well, Mm -hmm. and I say that in respect to leading is so hard,
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: but leadership in parenting and pastoring, with clergy, with with corporations, nonprofits, all of it, yeah, wherever we're leading, owning our mistakes is important for ourselves, of course, to learn and also to model for others. That mistakes are okay; that yeah. they're not the end of everything, yes, and that it doesn't dictate and determine our value, our dignity, what we're worth. Mm. And so often, when we cover up mistakes, or when we rationalize or justify them, or when we say a, li- a litany of excuses, mm-hmm. what we're telling other people is that mistakes are not okay. Yeah. If you don't cover it up, you will be punished, and somehow you're worth less. Right. And. For me, it has been so important to try Mm -hmm. to balance the beating myself up versus the here the things that I could have done differently. I did these things well, but these things, if I had just shifted this many degrees, Mm -hmm. it may have turned out better. And Mm -hmm. and I'm learning that that's okay to say, and -hmm. I'm learning that that's okay to express.
2: Yeah.
1: And I know that that's not true of every place because of things like job security and, you know, all of that. I, I know that there are social pressures to look perfect. It's very difficult to create that kind of climate, to mm. create that kind of work culture or home culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're able to, for me, when I've seen is being able to own our mistakes is like being able to breathe out because right. if no one can make a mistake, we're just holding our breath.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: we're, we're doing like a, a ballet on thin ice. Mm. you know, with bruised ankles. And that never works out for anybody. It's just constant nervousness and anxiety. And I'm sure that you and I and anybody who's listening, we've been in those kind of environments Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where it feels like I I better do perfect. And if I don't, I'm just not going to say that part of it, you know, I can't say that part of it. So whether, you know, in my own work, I, I, there are times when I feel like when I tell a story, I'm like, am I, am I, in a zone right now where i'm telling my hero stories too much (laughs) Mm. you know and i I don't ever want to get to that place where i lose touch with no it's it's okay to admit when i got this wrong yeah you know and one thing i've noticed speaking specifically in church ministry is when pastors from the pulpit share their hero stories too much Mm. it almost makes them look like they're not human (laughs) right (laughs) they're kind of setting themselves up on a pedestal right and also almost saying like you know the secret to being Christ-like is to be like me <laughs> is what I'm hearing, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, what they're telling the congregation is you got to be this level. You got to be this standard of perfection. Yeah. And so I, I hope we can take that, that dress off, that shirt off, because it's too tight and it's suffocating and yeah. we're all holding our breath. Yeah. And so I'm just learning it is okay to admit mistakes in a way that is mm-hmm. not self-harming, but uh, liberating.
0: Hey, everyone, taking a quick break to kind of focus in on the topic of marriage. My husband and I have been married for 31 years, and we have the privilege of speaking at marriage conferences across the country. And marriage is challenging, and there are a lot of challenging topics to navigate. And 31 years ago, I would have really appreciated um, the kind of content that I'm about to share with you. Countdown to Marriage is an online course that's created by Legacy Family Ministries, And it's set to help couples have a meaningful and fulfilling marriage. It's uh, designed to help engage couples to connect and to lay a solid foundation before saying I do. In this six-session course, Legacy Family Ministries walks couples through practical topics such as communication styles and conflict management and sexual intimacy, shared finances, and how to navigate relationships with in-laws. Those are the topics that really are often at the root of a lot of conflict in marriage. This course is led by Byron and Carla Weathersby. Who have spent nearly 30 years preparing thousands of couples for marriage including chip and joanna Gaines. the countdown to marriage course provides engaging training videos actionable resources from each lesson and important discussion questions to get couples talking about what matters most So if you're engaged to be married or know someone who is, visit LegacyCountdown.com slash online and enter the code IVMEDIA to save 25% off the cost of the course. Again, that's LegacyCountdown.com slash online and use IV, that's I-V-E-Y media at checkout to receive this discount. Marriage is an important relationship, and the investment into these topics before you say I do will yield such benefits. So check out this great opportunity. Hey everyone, if you're looking for a new Bible study, I want to tell you about one from my friends at Women of Welcome. I love them. They are such a great organization. Um, Their team has created a beautiful, simple, and free Bible study that can be done individually or with a group. Women of Welcome is a community dedicated to diving into the whole of Scripture to understand God's heart for the immigrant and refugee. The welcome of Christ was astonishing to the culture around him. He gave voice to the speechless, frustrated the powerful, and humbled the wise. As Christians, our welcome should be like his, wonderfully surprising, deeply challenging, and firmly rooted in love. And that's true as I study the scriptures and I learn about how people are made in the image of God, Imago Dei. And having that view of people changes how I interact with the people around me, especially those who come from a different background. So when you start following Women of Welcome and learning from them, you venture into a journey of understanding biblical hospitality in a fresh and authentic way. A great starting point is their Christlike Welcome Study, and you can download it for free today. Spend five weeks in the Word, exploring the beautiful welcome of Jesus toward His most beloved creation, human beings. To download your free copy of the Christlike Welcome Study, visit womenofwelcome.com slash Vivian. That's womenofwelcome.com slash Vivian for your free Bible study. Enjoy. I I 100% agree with that. And I think being under leadership that's willing to admit, uh, I don't expect my leaders to be perfect, or to have the the right answers even but just the willingness to admit, I've made mistakes. And it's not I'm sorry, if you might have felt offended, but just being able to say, say, say it, own it, uh, actually causes me to respect a leader even more. And I think I've seen in parenting that my children are uh, quite forgiving. And when I own it, and I just say, I blew it. And when I raised my voice, uh, it was wrong for me to to say what I say the way I said it, what I what I was saying was still important, but the way that I said it was hurtful. And I'm so sorry, you know, that, that uh, repair And that restoration, I think it really um, helps to reset uh, the the inside compass, like for my sons and my daughter to know it's not okay to be yelled at like that helps them as they travel through life. Because when someone yells at them, um, stranger or not, you know, they know that that's not okay, because that was modeled to them, you know, yeah. Okay, so yeah. I absolutely agree with that, that leadership yeah. well, I wish I could see more of that. And it takes a very secure leader to be able to admit when they make mistakes. And-
1: yeah, yeah. And I think I've said before, a culture of grace can only exist in a culture of honesty. Mm. And likewise, in reverse, a culture of honesty can only exist in a culture of grace
0: that's so true um i was a part of a 12-step group for codependency hmm. for um, over a decade and the honesty in that room was so refreshing i ha- i just think i wish that kind of rigorous honesty was taking place in bible studies because i really believe that's how god meant for us to be in relationship with being able to really speak truth um openly and and understand that there was confidentiality in what was being shared and
1: absolutely uh, yeah
0: there's so much to learn through the recovery process and um i i would love to see more and more of that enter into the aapi space and one of the one of the uh, priorities of the some days here community is that just so desire to normalize therapy medication as needed uh, just being able to talk about mental health. And um, I'm just so grateful that you're willing to even speak that out. I know that you have shared online that you, you know, you tried to stop taking medication for a bit and understood you needed to go back on medication and help me understand some of that journey for you in terms of, did you, you, when you were wanting to get off medication was what was going on and how did you decide to return to a place where you were on medication again.
1: Yeah, you know, that particular time that, when that happened, wasn't even quite a, I guess, a dramatic story. It's just, I forgot for a few days.
2: Mm -hmm. And then I look
1: back a few days and I said, oh, I I didn't take my medication and I I think I feel okay. Maybe I can just stop taking it.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: um, you know, it's an old catch 22 because the reason why you're feeling okay is because you're taking the medication. So then you think you can, you know, then stop the medication, which then brings Mm -hmm. you back. And there, there are some people I think under medical guidance uh, who can sort of either change medication, medications, or eventually um, not use them anymore. But I didn't do it any under under any medical guidance. I didn't consult my doctor about it. That was mm-hmm. a mistake. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I was okay for about as long as five weeks. I want to say, mm. and then around the fifth week, I crashed hard. It was really, really bad. Just spiraled out. And my baseline before I started medication, I've now been on medication almost two years. Mm-hmm. It's just a month shy or so of two years. I Before that, my baseline was uh, I thought about, and content warning here, I thought about suicide every single day.
2: Wow.
1: Every day. Um, and I don't mean like it would just kind of pop in my head. Like It would be there, and then I would just not want to finish my day. Wow, and I almost thought that that was normal. I knew that it wasn't okay, mm-hmm. but I thought this is just how I'm going to live.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: with this, with this just pervasive kind of almost tendrils wrapped around my lungs. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm always going to feel this. Uh, when I started medication, maybe many of us can uh, attest to this too. There is a phase in the beginning where medication there's a almost a dip in your body where. Mm. emotions and everything it it heightens Mm. and i think it even says on the on the label there's like a warning you may experience more feelings of depression in the beginning Mm. uh because that medication's doing some rewire it's doing its work basically
2: yeah Yeah. chemistry. yeah yeah
1: and from my understanding there is a point where it's not safe anymore but it's expected that it happens
2: Mm.
1: so again i i don't want to speak for any doctors but there there is a point where it's not okay but there is a point where it's like okay this is what's going to happen yeah um and it did. And then a few months passed. And in hindsight, I was like, you know what? I have not thought about suicide for weeks. Wow. And I never knew that that was possible. Right. Um, wow. And I think when I discovered that, I, I wept to myself a little bit. Mm. Just I didn't know this kind of life was even possible at all.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that hopes and wishes, maybe I won't need this anymore, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also a part of me that thinks, if this is what I have to be on, not have to be on, if this is what I need to be on mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of my life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because there's something in my brain that can't quite, you know, it wasn't, was, was it my fault? Maybe it was trauma, maybe it was biological, maybe it was social, maybe there's all these different factors that are out of my control.
2: hmm
1: but um, you know, anything that helps is good help, and all good help is God's help. Mm, uh, I've said point. that before, right? Yeah, I, it's and so if God gave us the gift of therapy, I'm just glad to be alive in a time where we have these gifts and have these advancements.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I, I'm not just okay being on them. I know that I need them, and I'm happy that I can be happy <laughs> on
0: mm-hmm. them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's so fascinating to me how God, gave us our brains and the reality of brain chemistry and the fact that we can have scientists and doctors and researchers who can figure some of these things out and to to live in a time when we would be able to treat depression, anxiety, um, any number of um, mental health issues. We're just, uh, again, I think we in the AAPI community Often try to power through, and I've read statistics before that one of the highest suicide rates is um, Asian American women between the ages of eighteen to thirty. I just think there is just such a striving, and even how you described growing up with the immigrant parents, but the drive to be perfect and to be the best at this, and we take that even into our faith journeys, and you know, just try to. We end up burning out trying so hard, and. yeah, that performance treadmill that just, just never ends. And I think there's a lot that links to brain chemistry and there's a lot yeah. that links to that coming from trauma. And, uh, I, I think this second generation and beyond we think of our children and their mental health as a priority, whereas immigrant parents were just like, we just need to stay alive and, you know, make a better world for our kids or just the, the, the priorities were so different and um, I see that in um, people that are trying to raise kids now with, you know, not only intellect, but emotional, you know, your EQ is as important as your IQ. And yeah, I just I'm grateful for you, your willingness to share that part of your story. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And if I can, you know, the part about the, if I can narrow in on that AAPI with the mental health, mm-hmm. I, you know, The more I look into that, I I can almost understand like why the AAPI community would be so averse to mental health help. And I think a lot of that has to do with, like you were saying, the perfectionism, Mm. because what doesn't bring tangible results is almost seen as superfluous, like it's trivial, like we don't need it, right? Right. And so mental health is quote unquote invisible. Mm -hmm. Whereas getting good grades and making income and getting accomplishments and achievements, you know, trophies, those are all tangible, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Even though those things in themselves are going to be, you know, buried under dirt, right? One day. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's it's the mental health part that because it's not tangible, maybe Mm -hmm. to an older generation and not just AAPI, but to an older generation, it's almost pointless because what is that going to do for my survival? Where Mm -hmm. can I put that on a mantle? Right. and so, I, I think that's a, a a huge broad discussion of there's there's the piece about it doesn't bring tangible results, and I've also noticed that many people of color, their relationship with healthcare is very conflicted. Yes. And so I have a lot of compassion towards that. Yes. Because being at bedside, I. I want to be really careful how I say this because I work, I'm work. i lucky to work in an amazing hospital.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's also going to be inevitably implicit bias towards people of color. It's yeah. just going to happen.
2: right?
1: Uh, because that is the unfortunate reality of unconfronted uh, bias and racism and mm-hmm. bigotry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, because of that, there is a lot of distrust of medical institutions, and I would say even rightfully so, and so I went to the doctor and they over-prescribed this or they gave me the wrong thing or they, you know, when I got there, I waited this many hours and they wouldn't treat me or because of the language barrier, I can't understand mm-hmm. anything that's going on. And they're treating me like I'm not human or that I'm less intelligent. That's right. And so um, that's not a counterpoint. That's, I guess, I'm saying in addition to mm-hmm.
2: that whole mental health,
1: why it's so hard to get help and why there's suspicion. I think yeah. some of that might even be justified. Yeah. And so... How can we, as there, there's something about reverse? I think it may be called reverse mentorship or where it's like the second generation or those mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. who get into positions of being almost able to translate and teach the older yeah. generation and yeah. say, I know you've been suspicious of this or, and you yeah. have reason to be, mm-hmm. uh, but how can I help you to get the help that you need? That's right. And th- that burden shouldn't be on us. Mm. And at the same time, when we're given the resources that we can, we want to ensure that the next generation, that they get the resources that we didn't have, right? right? That Mm -hmm. they get to go up on the ladder that we didn't have.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And at the same time, the older generation, can we help take care of them too? Yeah. You know, because uh, there's the elderly in the Asian American community being attacked. Yeah. So how can we help in that situation? Yes. There's elderly in the Asian American community who never had resources for medicine, mm-hmm. uh, who don't trust any kind of doctors or anything like that. How can we translate and help for that? Not just translate in language, but translate mm-hmm. in terms of generationally.
2: Yes. you know,
1: There's so much trauma wrapped around that. That's and so what I've learned so much in the hospital is that there is resistance. There is sometimes kind of like, a, oh, I don't know what that's going to do for me. There's fear. There's also fear underneath all of that. Yes, a fear of you know, what if this? Can I really trust this institution, this Mm -hmm. doctor, this healthcare? Mm -hmm. And so, how can we unravel and unpack all of that?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Oh gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up because it really, it, 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 that's really the, the backdrop of so so much of what we're talking about, and to have more a more whole picture, it helps us to. Be able to understand how these parts fit together, so I appreciate that very, very much. Yeah. Now you mentioned that you have a book coming out soon on grief. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, um, this may be the first time I'm announcing it, like on a podcast. Okay. But um, I'm with W Publishing. Yes. And yeah, and it is a book on grief that is coming out in uh, May of 2024.
2: Okay, that is
1: uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and it's AAPI Heritage Month. Yes, so, yes.
0: We'll be shouting uh, at mountaintops. You know that. <laughs> oh,
1: thank you. Yeah, and, uh, and and big shout out and woop woo and air horn to uh, my editor Lisa Joe Baker. We just started on this journey, Excellent. and uh, super big air horn to my agent Andrea of the Bindery. Yes, wonderful she's too. Oh yeah, that's right. We share oh an agent. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. She's great. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big super big air horn to them. <laughs> um very wonderful. Yeah. You know, um W Publishing has been awesome and they've just been so vocal to me about protecting my mental health because they know that writing a book like this is is very very difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, not just because of the topic itself, but the topic itself is already heavy, but I'm digging into the work that I do and that that's it's just a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um but yeah, that the book itself, it's going to be the initial plan, and Viv, you probably know this, and that, you know, when you have the proposal for the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> by the time the book releases, you're like, hey, this looks very different. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, yeah, yeah. You may have junked like even entire chapters. Mm-hmm. So my hope, though, is that um, it's 10 chapters and each one is going to cover a different dimension of grief. Mm. So, uh, for example, how do we approach the loss of autonomy? Mm. Um, as we age and as we approach um, a disability, right. and as we discuss end of life, mm. uh, there's things in our li- lives, as just with the inevitable passage of time, or if there's an injury or there's illness, yes. there are things in our body that we have to sadly leave behind, mm. um, whether by choice or not.
2: Right.
1: And so, as we c- come to that sort of end of life or mortality, mm. uh, how do we grieve that? Mm. And what does the decision-making look like as we enter that, that season of our life? Wow. And uh, loss of mental health. There's another chapter I talk about loss of faith. Um, during residency, I did lose my faith for a while. Mm-hmm. I just reverted back to atheism.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, I came back, but I came back changed and different yeah. with yeah. a very different understanding of God in the context of suffering. Mm. And that, that's going to be sort of the overarching, I guess, story of the book as well. Yeah. about how did my faith change mm. and then i think the last chapter is going to be uh, loss of loved ones so e- each one is going to take on a-, a different aspect of grief
2: mm.
1: and uh it's weird to say but i'm very excited to write this book and yeah. I-, I know that's a weird word to use for this kind of book but it's something that from the experience the stories that i've heard Mm-hmm. Uh, the ways that I've been able to honor my patients because really mm-hmm. it's all about them. Yes. Anything that I can glean from that to be able to help someone, to mm-hmm. guide them, to lift them up through their grief process, mm-hmm. you know, um, I want to be able to put that down. And yeah. And, and yeah.
0: Yeah. I can't wait for the book to release. I think I've long thought, and I know others think similarly, that what we've, been in and have walked through and are still in and will continue to kind of move through is a lot of unprocessed grief. There's just been so much loss and uh, tragically loss of life. But there's also been loss of milestones and opportunities and jobs and um, yeah. So we are in need of your book. So um, it can't come soon enough. So keep writing, I'll pray for you when you come to mind, because I know it's a it's a labor of love, and especially with the topic, as you said. So, well, how can people connect with you? Um, what are the places? Where can they find you?
1: Oh, I'm on all the things. Let's see. Um, Instagram, those are my, like, I'm on a break right now, but those are my carefully constructed thoughts. Twitter is like my real live, unfiltered, sometimes I got to delete stuff. <laughs> thoughts, yeah. And then uh, I have a Facebook, but whew, the comments there can get a little wild. You know, it's good old Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah, Facebook in Florida, it's all, this, it's all the same Venn diagram. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what is your handle? And we will also link it in the show notes, too. What oh, yeah,
1: handle? thank you. Um, Instagram, JSPark3000. Twitter and Facebook are JSPark blog. Okay, And I do still have a blog, but I don't think I've written anything on it in a long... I, I don't know if anybody uses blogs anymore. Maybe it's
0: turned to podcasts now these days. Podcast or Substack some
1: yeah, or something, stuff,
0: yeah. Yeah, something like that. So, no, that's great. Well, we'll definitely link all those things up. And um, just so incredibly grateful for such a rich conversation with you. And, um, yeah, we'll definitely have to have part two. So just hang on, everyone. We'll have more time together so yeah 100% would love to
1: yeah
0: (laughs) that's great have a great rest of your day
1: all right thank you appreciate you
0: someday is here is a production of ivy media podcast it's produced and edited by angie elkins show notes and graphics are by nikki ogden and the original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. To learn more about the Somedays Here community, check us out on the socials at Somedays Here Podcast or at Viv Mabuni on Instagram.